Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good. Praise God. All right, let's go. Genesis chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning as we're working our way through the first 12 chapters of Genesis. If you are, as we mentioned just about every Sunday, if you're a visitor with us, uh, we're really glad that you're here. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you're, you're not yet a Christian, you just came by invitation, you don't even own a Bible, we would love for you. Or maybe you're, you're a Christian and you've forgotten your Bible and um, you're looking to upgrade because we have some pretty nice little Bibles underneath the seats. Well, you're welcome, if you don't have a Bible, to use that Bible and keep it. Again, if you're just looking to upgrade, come on now. Don't upgrade on us, but um, we want you to use that Bible, follow along. We're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel today, which, is, uh, which has got so much for us. And if you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. You can find that on page probably three or four of that Bible that's in, in front of you. Have you ever been really, really angry Oh, I didn't expect such affirmation. <laughs> yeah, we've got a mad crowd today. Uh, yeah, I've been, my, my blood runs hot. Um, have you ever been the object of somebody being really, really angry at you? I have. In fact, this week, um, I faced a little bit of that in my household. Uh, we got a dog a few months ago given to us by some dear friends that are part of this church who've since moved, um, ministry has moved them on, but we took this dog in and loved this dog, and this dog is kind of a long-haired dog, and um, I I made a not-so-wise decision to buy some clippers from the pet store and to give this dog a haircut along with our other dog who, you know, regularly gets a haircut. I was tired of paying vet to groom the dog, which I thought was a little expensive. So I got a good set of clippers and I gave this dog a haircut. Now, I think probably in retrospect, I had the guard set a little too low. (laughs) And um, I also found that I I don't have the steadiest of hands. (laughs) And so this dog is not meant to have hair that short and this dog's hair is very, very blotchy. And I became the object of the other five people that live in my house. I became the object of their, really, anger <laughs> because of the way I made our dear pet look. In fact, I think even the dog is kind of angry at me. <laughs> and the dog looks t- terrible. Some people think that the story of Cain and Abel that we're going to read about this morning is a story about anger, a story of where one brother is angry at another brother, is jealous of this brother, and that deep, intense anger and jealousy leads to murder, the first murder. But I think it's about something much deeper than anger. I think that this story that we're going to read today of this account of this first pair of siblings... And then the first murder, I think, is about something much deeper 
than anger. Yes, anger is the fruit. It's the bad fruit. But it has a deeper bad root. And this deeper bad root is misplaced worship. I think the story of Cain and Abel that we're going to read about today is about worship and our hearts. And so in just a moment, we're going to read and we've got some things to say and encourage us in these scriptures. And then after the message, we're going to receive communion as a faith family. And if you are a Christian, you are welcome to come to the table this morning and to remember what ultimately this story is about. This is not just a, a morality tale of you know, controlling our anger. Ultimately, this story is pointing us to the cross of Christ and his work that we are coming as a church family to celebrate as we come around this table and take the bread that represents Jesus' broken body and take the juice that represents his blood spilled on behalf of his people. And if you are a Christian... You're welcome to come to this table this morning. But if you're not yet a Christian, you shouldn't partake of this meal that we will partake of as a family afterwards. Not because we're trying to single you out or make you feel uncomfortable, but because we love you. And we don't want you to falsely assume that you are right with a holy and righteous God when you may not be. And we want to bring you to a place of understanding the bad root that exists in every person, which is a heart that's broken. And we want you to realize that there's a holy God who demands that you hide yourself in Christ. And if you're not there yet, we pray that you keep coming back so that maybe God would give you a heart to worship him. But if you are a Christian, you're welcome to come to this table and remember Christ. Well, let's pray, and then let's read these words and think deeply about them. Father, as we come to you this morning, as we have sung about Jesus, as, if, as we've read Jesus' word already in this service, I pray, God, that you would help us see Jesus, even as we're looking at this ancient tale of two brothers and the first murder. Lord, I pray for the Christians in this room that you would encourage us and convict us and stir the affections of our hearts so that this would not just be another Sunday in the South where we are checking the box and coming to church and doing our thing and then going to lunch and you know, mistreating a waitress and then taking a nap and just kind of settling into the grumpy rhythms of life. But no, Lord, I pray that today you would stir our affections and that as we have even sung this morning that you would refresh our minds of how deeply we need you. We need you. And Lord, for my friends that are in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, and surely there are some in a, in a room this size with a, with a crowd this size, I pray, God, that you would do what they cannot do. I pray that you would give them a heart to believe, that you would take their dead heart and that you would make it alive by the power of your free and sovereign grace, and that you then would give them the very thing that you command of them, which is faith, so that they can turn away from themselves and turn away from self-righteousness and turn away from broken pleasure and turn in faith and trust towards joy and pleasure in Christ. Lord, do these things, I pray, for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, and meet with us 
this morning in your word. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read. Let me read in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is God's holy word. Well, let's just review the context and the setting, and then we need to ask a question. And then from that, I think we can learn several things that will will draw out. The context is, as we've mentioned, as we were in Genesis 3 last week, and the first sin, and sin enters humanity. Adam and Eve rebel in the garden, and now sin has brought death, and now they are settling into the, the new normal. And they are settling into life and, and working under this curse and separation from God. They've rebelled against Him. They're separated from God's presence in the garden because of their sin. But Genesis 4 begins with a a little bit of a glimmer of hope. Did you notice that sort of strange sentence in verse 1? It says, Eve there, when she has a baby, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And remember, 
what Genesis 3.15 said, God's first glimmer of hope of the promise of the gospel that we looked at last week. In fact, Kwame in his spoken word referred to it, that Genesis 3.15, where God is speaking to the serpent and to Adam and Eve, and he's saying that there's coming a seed of the woman which will bruise the serpent's head. Yes, the serpent may bruise the heel of the man, but there's coming a seed of the woman that shall bruise, shall crush, crush the serpent's head. And what God is doing there is he is foreshadowing and pointing forward to the, the seed of the woman being the man, Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, who will come and who will eventually crush Satan and all his works. And Eve, obviously not knowing that, fully developed of what that promise eventually will be thousands of years later in Jesus, is thinking, here this first baby, that maybe this man that I've, that I've gotten with the help of the Lord will be the, the seed, the man that is going to crush and punish the serpent. And we find here, as we've read, and then we'll read through Genesis and really through the rest of the Old Testament, that this false hope of this one man um, never turns out and ultimately causes us to push forward to Christ. And so Eve's words really are, are a sense of hope that ultimately is dashed as this hope-filled brother, son, Cain, eventually proves not to be the rescuer. And then she has another son, Abel, and we see these two vocations of these brothers. Cain is a farmer, and Abel is a, a shepherd, a keeper of the flocks. And then these brothers, we don't know why the Bible doesn't tell us much, but these brothers then bring an offering to the Lord. This is the first recorded offering in the Bible. God hasn't prescribed it as far as we know. At least it's not written for us in Scripture. He may have. Maybe they learned it from their father Adam, but nevertheless they bring God some of the, pro the produce of their differing vocations. And Abel's offering is accepted but Cain's is rejected. And that drives him into anger and jealousy and eventually murder. Just a couple little small points before we get to this one question that I think we must deal with. It may be sort of rattling around in your mind. Did you notice there that at the end of the scripture that we read that, that Cain is worried about this, this curse that he has to bear from God and he says, well, whoever finds me will kill me. And we may wonder, who are these other people? I mean, isn't it just Adam and Eve and their two first children, Cain and Abel? Well, the scripture doesn't tell us everything that, that goes on there. There were very likely many other children that Adam and Eve had, and so there's other brothers and sisters that are populating the earth at this time, and scripture is zeroing in on these two brothers, Cain and Abel, to show us something. But, but that leads us to another question, is how did God populate the earth? Have you ever, ever faced that objection? Did, did a brother have to take his sister as a wife? Well, I think the clear answer to that question is at this stage of the development of humanity, yes. Yes. And even though later on that becomes prohibited in God's law that a brother shall not lie with his sister, at this particular point in the development of humanity, yes, that seems to be the case. And I think it's easily explained that, that at this particular point, sin has not really begun to work its ravaging effects even in sort of our genetics. I mean, people, next week we'll, we'll look at how people live for hundreds of years at this point in human history. And so a brother would take his sister as a wife, and this was the, really the only way in which all humanity was populated. 
And then we also, there's that little note there before we move on to this great question that we have to ask, is this notion of what was Cain's mark? God has cursed Cain for his sin of killing his brother. And some people have speculated that Cain's mark was maybe some identifiable mark on him that, that maybe is even bore by certain ethnic groups today, and nothing could be further from the truth. This, this mark that God has put on Cain is not some, I think, exterior tint of skin or some tattoo on his forehead. And even if, it, if, if that were the case, all of Cain's descendants perished in the flood. No, I think that this mark is, is not so much a punishment. It's actually God's common grace. It's, it's God's mercy on, on Cain. So it's not a mark of judgment. It's God's mercy on Cain, whatever this mark was. God's punishment on Cain was to push him away from his presence. But then he puts this mark on Cain to be Cain's protector in human civilization at that point. And it's not a mark that I think any group of people bear today. That's just false if you've ever heard that before. Okay, enough background now, and that leads us to the question that I think this this Scripture begs. Why was Abel's offering accepted while Cain's was not? Why did God look favorably on Cain's offering, I'm sorry, on Abel's offering, while he rejected Cain's offering? Some have speculated that this was because Abel's offering included, you know, blood sacrifice of animals, and that's pointing forward to the blood sacrifice of Jesus. And although, you know, I understand that thought, it really wouldn't have made much sense to the early readers of Genesis, of God's people in Israel. Remember, centuries later now, these people are reading Genesis as it was written by Moses, as God, through the Holy Spirit, gave Moses the knowledge of what happened before he was even there. And so this is not trying to teach Israel that blood sacrifice is more important than grain sacrifice because in their sacrificial system through Moses' law, grain sacrifice was just as acceptable as, as blood sacrifice. So I don't think that it's, it's making any statement about, about blood versus grain sacrifice. I think it's a little bit deeper. I think we see in the text two keys. Here in, verse, in verse 3 and 4, it says, In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, of their fat portions. And so we see here, there's a, even in that, just a text right there, a differentiation between what seems to be the value of the offering, not because one is an animal and the other is grain, but, but what it meant in, in their world. You see, Abel brings the firstborn, like the best. He's setting aside the first for God, whereas Cain is just bringing an offering, some of the grain or some of the produce or some of the fruit of the ground. But I think there's something even deeper than just sort of setting aside the firstborn. And we see that in the New Testament. In fact, in the Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews is looking back on this scene of Cain and Abel and is making a commentary about what's going on inside the hearts of these two brothers. And, and it says it here in Hebrews 11 verse 4. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. And so I think what's going on here is that God is looking at the heart of these two brothers. 
And he's not necessarily making a, a determination that, you know, uh, on the open market, the, the firstborn cow was more valuable than the, you know, cantaloupe or whatever, whatever Cain brought. No, God is, see, see, we look on the outside, don't we? But God is zooming into the heart and he, he regards Abel's offering because of Abel's heart, because it was offered in, in, in faith. And God counted that faith as righteousness. Whereas he rejected Cain and his offering because it wasn't offered in faith. So I think then that leads us to four things that we can learn from this story. And, and number one is that God sets the terms of worship. Notice here that it is God who deems what is acceptable. God is the one who determines how we should approach him. God looks on favor, looks with favor on Cable's offering, or on Abel's cable, mixing them together, Abel's offering, because Abel is bringing this offering as really a, a sort of outward expression of how he has made God center and primary in his world. God doesn't need anything from us. It's not like God needs the pick of our litters. He doesn't need the firstborn of Abel's flock or the first harvest of Cain's crops, but he is calling Cain and Abel and every person since then to prioritize, to make him primary in our lives. God is the one who determines how we approach him. And when I talk about worship, I'm not talking about the hour and a half or two hours that we gather here on Sunday only, or the songs that we sing, right? Or whether we raise our hands or, or whether we read out of, uh, sing out of hymnals. I'm not talking about that, although that's important. I'm talking about how we, as the created, approach God. He's God. He is the creator. We're the created, we are here for him, not him for us, but, but we've sort of flipped this in our culture today, haven't we? God, God is sort of there for us to come alongside us and be our, like our co-pilot, as the bumper sticker says. And if you have that bumper sticker, I'm sorry, I didn't see it. I didn't see it in the parking lot. I'm not specifically talking to you. If you're offended by that, again, you can email me at robert at insidecrosspoint.com. <laughs> But come on, isn't that just a little bit of a, a little bit of a, of a symptom of sort of this man-sitterness of our universe, right? There was this, uh, there was this Polish mathematician back in the 1500s, and I don't know if he was a Christian, but it was right around the time of the Reformation, and his name was Nicholas Copernicus. Which, by the way, is just a cool name. If you're, if you're, if you're going to have a name, ha- have it be Nicholas Copernicus. But he, up to that point, he, he revolutionized the way we looked at our solar system. Up to that point, we thought that the earth was the center of our solar system. And that all the heavenly bodies, the moon and the, the sun, especially, and the other planets, rotated around earth. But Nicky Copernicus realize that, no, the sun is the center of the solar system, and everything revolves around the sun. And that has become known as the Copernican Revolution. 
And, and I think every person, when, when they come to God, need to have a sort of personal Copernican revolution. God is not there for us. We are here to serve and worship him. And in our worship and serving of him, then as a byproduct of that, of course, he is for us and not against us and serves us in ways immeasurably. But do you see this, this, this setting out of what it looks like to approach God? God sets the terms of our worship. Which then brings us to the, to the second point that I think just sort of jumps off this page is that, that God is not after our sacrifices. He's after our hearts. It's not that God needed Abel's offering more than Cain's. It's not like, wow, you know, we were, we were short on, on some good cold cuts up in heaven. We're good on cantaloupe and watermelon. So, thank you, Abel. Cain, I'm sorry, man. You know, we're in season. The refrigerator's full. No, God's not after you know, what we can bring him. Romans 11 says that that God doesn't need us to repay him. Who can repay God? God, in in this story, he's putting it in the scriptures to show us something, that he's after our hearts, not our sacrifices. And that worship is not the carrying out of prescribed details, approaching God. The Christian life is not the carrying out of rules and regulations, but it is the faith-filled, full-hearted response to God for His goodness and glory. That's what it means to worship God, not to abide by some exterior, but to serve your heart to not withhold anything from God who alone is good and can give us satisfaction and joy that we all that we all crave. God is after our hearts, not our sacrifices. But I will say this that when we talk about it, I think Americans are prone to this when we talk about heart and relationship, I think sometimes we can emphasize this and quickly get off the rails. And it can kind of become kind of all kumbaya, like, oh, God, God, just, wants, God just wants your heart, you know. And, and we end up treating Jesus more like a prom date than a, the king, you know what I mean? So when we talk about God wanting our heart and God wanting to be in relationship with us, that shouldn't be sort of subconscious speak for, you know, because I can just kind of continue to mess up and do whatever I want, but God's going to be there for me because he just wants my heart. And so I can just kind of continue to do whatever I want. Do you see how that sort of relationship heart language can sort of subconsciously turn upside down and just be an excuse for us to keep on like doing whatever we want? Which then brings us, I think, to the, the next point that we see here that again just jumps out of this story is this idea of sin and disobedience. The third point is that sin wants to master us, not just minimize us. Yes, God wants our heart. Yes, he wants a relationship. He wants a Copernican revolution in the heart of every person so that they will trust in him. But he wants it for our good, which is our holiness, according to his way and his standard. And we see this, really, this haunting scene of this brother, Cain, being spoken to by God, being warned by God as he, God could see the anger and the jealousy sort of welling up in his heart 
And in verse 6 and 7, look at what it says again. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, listen to this warning he gives to, to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. In other words, it wants to master you and dominate you, but you must rule over it. Sin wants to master us, not just to minimize us. Sin crouches up and sneaks up on us. It rarely declares itself for what it is, right? I mean, it doesn't just jump out from behind the rock and say, Hi, I'm sin. I'm here to wreck your life and make you miserable. How's that sound? No, it sneaks up like a, like a crouching tiger or lion seeking to destroy. And God graciously warns Cain and gives him an opportunity to repent, to run to God. For New Testament Christians, for us today, it's even better. God God gives us Christ's righteousness and the Holy Spirit and the Bible and community. And he calls us, too, to look at how we are susceptible to live life according to our own standard in our own way. And he tells us that we must as well. We must be aware that sin desires to destroy us. That quote, I know I... I, I I talk about it a lot here from that British theologian, William Orneau, back in the 1800s. In fact, I've said it so much, I think some of you could probably quote it. You know what I'm going to say. That the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their sin, whereas the non-Christian, who may think that they're a Christian but they're deceived, or is maybe just knowing that they're not a Christian, is taking sin side against a dreaded God, right? And so friends, so when we talk about sin and its desire to master us, know that, that this person who's speaking to you now is, is, is not sinless. I mean, come to my house any particular afternoon or evening when we're you know, trying to put kids to bed or trying to get somebody to do their homework or reacting to the anger of shaving your dog or whatever. I mean, I am still fighting sin. I'm a train wreck. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thank you. <laughs> do you see what God has is warning Cain as it becomes an echo throughout the centuries and it warns us that we too are to fight sin. The, the Puritan writer and preacher John Owen said that we must be killing sin or it will be killing us. Now, one final thing on this before we move on to the final point is that I know any talk about sin, you know, it just kind of, it's sort of branded as, ah, you know, hellfire and brimstone. I like this church. The music was cool. They did that little spoken word. This seemed like a cool, hip place. Now he's up there talking about sin. Just like the church that I grew up in, legalism. Now he's going to tell me I can't do this, this, and this. Right? No, no, friends, no, listen. That when the Bible and when God speaks about sin and our, our uh, mandate to fight against it, he's not, like, like, get this notion out of your head. Get this legalistic, Saturday Night Live skit 
church lady view of God out of your mind. Like God is not after our clenched fist, white knuckled, begrudging obedience because he is a grumpy grandpa and we are his minions. That's not the gospel. God is not against our joy. He's all for our joy. And so when the Bible and Cain and later on through the rest of the scriptures that talk about how we're to fight sin, it's not that God is saying to us, don't do all of these things that I know you really like to do so that you can be a good little Christian boy and girl and tuck in your shirt and comb your hair and be, you know, just kind of, you know, the good little legalist church kid who's grumpy and miserable deep down inside. Friend, if that's your view of what it means to be a Christian, you have been lied to. No, no, what the scriptures talk about when it talks about fighting sin is by saying no to a broken pleasure that leads to destruction so that we can say yes to a greater pleasure which leads to joy. Listen to to, to James 1 verses 14 through 17. I I see this, like I see this in this text here. It's It's just laid out for us. James is sort of drawing out the anatomy of temptation and sin. Verse 14, James chapter 1. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So look, we're children of Adam and Eve, right? We've got this nature in us, right? Right? It's, it's just like we're spiritually, we, we've got these own broken desires in us. Because remember what we talked about last week? We are by nature and by choice sinners. And then when this desire, then the, the desire, verse 15, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So notice the connection here. Why would James talk about good gifts right after he's talked about sin? Because he's trying to show us That when we fight sin, we're not losing out on anything. So he's saying, don't be deceived. It's a lie. Like, it's a lie. That lie that says, oh, you can do whatever you want and God just wants your heart. You know, it's okay. You can live however you want. That's a lie. Because God has good gifts for his people when they fight sin by the power of Christ's righteousness that he puts inside of us by the word of God, by community, then we are pursuing joy in Christ. So living the way he wants us to live with our possessions, not hoarding it, hoarding our stuff and accumulating trinkets, but being radically generous with our houses and our possessions and our bank accounts is actually more joyful. Giving yourself, listen to me, young lieutenants and soldiers in the army and young girls that are tempted to give yourself away to some hairy-legged punk just because he tells you that he loves you. Giving yourself sexually to one person within the confines of marriage is not because God wants to rob you of joy, but because he wants to lead you into true joy in your sexuality. You see that? And do you see how the lie comes? 
Oh, well, you know, God's holding out on you. No, friends. Sin wants to destroy us, not just minimize us. And that brings us to the last and final point. And if there's one thing that Cain gets right in this, it's his understanding of what his sin has brought upon him. In verse 13, and by the way, um, isn't that just kind of, I don't, this is before the point I want to make, but isn't that something when Cain sort of mouths off to God? You know, where's your brother? As if God didn't already know. What, am I my brother's keeper? <laughs> I remember one time I have an older brother. Uh, he's three years older than me. And we lived right on the Mexican border. And it was forbidden for us to go to Mexico, which I, if you, it's, Mexico is actually a whole other country. And um, so, I mean, it's not like, you know, just going over to the river to Phoenix City. I mean, when you get into Mexico, anything could happen. And so it was a strict rule for, for me and my brother. My parents said, you're driving now. You cannot go to Mexico. And one time, my parents found out that my brother went to Mexico with some friends, um, which sounds drastic, but I mean, it's like a mile down the street. And my dad asked him a question, knowing the answer, knowing that he was there, because he heard it from some other people. Where were you tonight? And my brother kind of mouthed off to him, like, well, where do you think I was? <laughs> and I just every time I read this story of Cain, <laughs> I think of my brother mouthing off. Now, let me tell you, it did not go well for my brother that night. <laughs> But think about the, like the moxie. Just think about the, really the moxie and the pride that Cain had to question God. Think about really how we, we do that, like we do that all the time. What, am I responsible for somebody other than myself? Yes! Yes! Cain asked the question like rhetorically because he thinks the answer is obviously no. But the question is actually rhetorical the other way. Yes! You're not an island. You don't live for yourself. Right? I didn't create you for yourself. I created you for community to, to lay down your life for other people. But just, I, okay. Rabbit trail ended. Back to what I was going to say. One thing Cain does get right is verse 13. After God banishes him, curses him. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, Can you just sense the dread and the despair and the hopelessness and the weight of this sentence? My punishment is greater than I can bear. That leads us to the fourth point. Cain gets this right. The punishment for sin is more than we can bear. You see, remember we talked about point before there, sin wants to master us, not just to minimize us. And the consequences of sin is not just a less than optimal life, right? That's why, friends, don't read this junk that, you, that passes itself off as Christian literature, like your best life now, written by... Joel Osteen, that is junk. It's not the gospel. It is, it's a lie. And it couches the Christian life as just sort of improving your life here and now. And it couches sin as just sort of making life, you know, and bad decisions is, is making you less than able to reach your full potential. That's not true. 
You know, sin will come and destroy us, and the consequences for our sin is a punishment beyond what we can bear. And friends, that's where the good news of the gospel is, because the writer of Hebrews says something about Cain and, Abel and, and Abel's blood and Jesus' blood that ties this all together. The punishment for our sin is more than we can bear, and that's why we need a Savior. And this is what Hebrews 12, verse 24 says about this scene. Again, the writer of Hebrews, looking back on the scene, and it speaks about Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so Abel's blood is crying for justice, right? It's crying for revenge. But Jesus' blood is crying out grace, right? Do, do you see that? We need a Savior We need somebody who will die in our place for our sin and defeat it. So the point of this story, friends, don't read this story like moralistically. The point of this story is not, okay, boys and girls, we had these two brothers, and one was bad, and one was good. So Johnny, Susie, be like the good brother, okay? Don't be like the bad brother, Run along now. Here's your lollipop and your sticker. Good boys and girls. Friends, no, no. No, the moral of the story is not be more like Abel and not like Cain. The moral of the story is we are all like Cain. We are all like Cain. And Jesus, Abel, is is pointing forward to, to Jesus. Abel is like Jesus, the righteous one who was slain. And we are all like Cain who have killed our righteous brother Jesus. But unlike Abel's blood, which cries out for revenge, as the writer of Hebrews said, our brother Jesus, his blood cries out for grace. Do you see? It's it's pointing us to this need for a Savior. The point of the story is not fix yourselves, do better, be good, Offer a better sacrifice. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you can't do it. You're all like Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Don't trust in yourselves. The punishment for your rebellion against the good and holy God is more than you can bear. So look outside of yourselves to Jesus and put your faith and trust in him. The writer, First Peter, that we went through a few months ago, says in First Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Friends, we are all like Cain, and we all need a Savior. And that's what this meal that we are about to come and receive together is pointing towards. It's pointing us to remember and consider and renew our trust, not in ourselves, but in Christ. If you're a Christian, what this meal means is that we are coming to remember what Jesus has done and to examine our lives in light of that. To think about this ongoing fight with sin that we have. Is there something in my heart that is 
is not where it should be? And do I need to take God's side against my sin? And if that's the case, and certainly it's the case for every person in this room who's, who's a Christian, is now when we look at this table and this bread and this juice, it points us to Jesus. And we know that we can do this because Jesus has bore our sin extinguished its consequences, defeated death in the grave, and has given us his righteousness. And now we can fight the sin that is crouching at our door, and we can say no to it, and yes to God, by the power of the gospel that lives in us. And when we come to this table, it's not just a a ritual or something that we do together every month, but it is us remembering what the gospel is leading us into, which is joy. And if you're not a Christian, this table and this story and this gospel is now calling you to turn away from the sin that is crouching at your door, to turn away from rebellious pursuits of counterfeit pleasures, and to look outside of yourself, and to look to Jesus even now. Friends, don't make that up the 12-step process. Don't make that a, a work that you bring to the table. Make that your response to Christ who's done all the work. It's not, okay, you want to become a Christian? Now do these three or four things. It's looking away from yourself and looking in faith to Jesus, putting all of your hope for your right standing with God based on what Jesus has done, not on what you have done. That's what it means to believe in Christ. Look away. This table, this message, this gospel is calling you, pleading with you to look away from yourself. And it's warning you that your only hope is in Christ because there is a punishment coming that is too great for you to bear. Look away from yourself and to Christ. Do that even now, friends. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus, the risen King who wants to lead you into all joy, who commands you to turn away from sin and to trust in him for life. Now, even now, look to him and trust in him. And if you do that, you're welcome to come to this table with us as a new creature in Christ Jesus. Ushers, if you would come and be prepared to serve us, As they come, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, indeed, sin lies. Indeed, sin does not just minimize, it crushes and destroys. And indeed, you offer joy and satisfaction. in Christ. And indeed, the punishment for our rebellion against you is more than we can bear. For my brothers and sisters who are already in Christ this morning, would you give us the kind grace to search out our hearts, to be aware of where sin may be crouching at our door and to fight that sin not with our own grit and strength but with the power of the gospel with the power of the righteousness of Jesus that has been given us he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness and now with that righteousness with the word of God with our community of the local church with the strength that you give us Lord would we examine our lives and fight our sin with the power of 
the gospel. And Lord, for my friends in this room who came in not knowing you, Lord, would you give them what you command? I'm not asking them to gin up faith or an emotional response or more grit or determination. We can't do it. We are completely dependent on you to give us what we need. So, Father, would you give hearts and minds and ears to believe and trust and hear and look to Jesus for the first time truly and to put hope and faith in what he has done, not in what we have done. Lord, would you give that to any person in this room who came in not truly trusting in Jesus? Lord, I plead with you to do that. As we come around your table, would you renew our gaze on our crucified and risen King? And I pray it in his glorious name. Amen. Amen.